Greg Boyson with Inside Personal Growth. The following episode is brought to you by Michael Alden, the author of the national best-selling book, 5% More. Mike was a recent guest on Inside Personal Growth, and together we discussed how small incremental changes are the secret to long-term sustainable growth. In our interview, these incremental changes are the key and all that it takes to create more success in your life. Mike is also the author of Ask More, Get More, another best-selling book. If you want to learn more about Mike Alden and his groundbreaking book, 5% More, please visit www.5percentmore.com or go to www.michael-alden.com. Please take the time to listen to our episode by going to podcast number 615, that's 615, at Inside Personal Growth. Thanks for listening to Inside Personal Growth, and enjoy the interview with author and sponsor of this podcast, Michael Alden. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth, and I want to thank all of my listeners, Stephen, as I always do, uh, for coming back again and again and listening to these podcasts um, we're up to about 620 podcasts over the last 10 and a half years. So we appreciate everybody who listens to me <clears throat> and listens, more importantly, to what I call the words of wisdom from our authors. And we have joining us from uh, New Mexico uh, is Stephen Kotler. And the book we're going to be speaking about, which just was released, is called Stealing Fire, How Silicon Valley, the Navy Seals, and Maverick scientists are revolutionizing the way we work and live. And this is co-authored with his partner, Jamie Weil. Hey, Stephen, how are you doing today? Greg, it's really good to be back with you. Well, it's good to have you on the show. And again, I know that you're super busy and thank you for taking your time to, uh, you know, spend time with my listeners. Um, I'm going to let them know a tad about you because they don't all go back to the other prior podcasts. I've done three other podcasts with Stephen. He's a New York Times bestseller, award-winning journalist, and the co-founder and director of the Flow Genome Project. His books include Tomorrowland, Bold, The Rise of Superman, Abundance, A Small Fury Prayer, West of Jesus, The Angle, Quickest for Flight, his works have been translated into 40 languages, and his articles have appeared in more than 80 publications, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, Wired, Forbes, and Time. Uh, he's an in-demand speaker and advisor on technology, innovation, and peak performance. You can find him online at www.stevenkotler.com. Uh, you also can find him at the Flow Genome Project. Well, for the listeners out there that know Stephen, and there are going to be people that are listening to this that possibly don't know who you are, but there's going to be a lot of them that do. You and Jamie started this Flow Genome Project, which led you to writing The Rise of Superman and many other, other books, but which also led to all these conversations and dialogues and things with people that are you know, just out there studying peak performance, psychologists, sports psychologists, and so on. All over the world, you guys have gathered this data, you know, around hacking the flow. And, and actually, you're calling it stealing Kaikion. Um, Explain to my listeners a little bit about this journey so they have some context for this book and sure. why you and Jamie are, are 
doing this? It's a great question. Um, so let me quick overview of what Stealing Fire is about, and then we'll backtrack into like where it came from. The book is about a $4 trillion underground revolution in people hacking consciousness to massively increase performance. And it really, it, like the book emerged organically. At the Flow Genome Project, we study flow. It's an altered state of consciousness. It's known as an optimal state of consciousness, right, where we feel our best and we perform our best. So if that doesn't make sense to you, more specifically, it refers to those in-the-zone moments when we get so focused on the task at hand on what we're doing that everything else just vanishes. Since the self disappears, time passes strangely, and all aspects of performance go through the roof. And flow is one altered state of consciousness. It's got about a 150-year track record of accelerating performance. It's been studied uh, by scientists, by neuroscientists and psychologists for 150 years. Um, we know a lot about it. That said, at the Flow Genome Project, when I wrote Rise of Superman, you know, one of the things that really startled us is how quickly this stuff spread from the, what we say, what I've said is the extreme to the mainstream. Right before Rise came out. We were working with top athletes, with the military special ops, that kind of thing, um, people who were really, really performing in seriously competitive environments. After Rise came out, we found ourselves all over the country. There was still a lot of cutting-edge performance, Fortune 100 companies, tech companies like Google and Facebook, um, but we were also on Wall Street. We were also on Main Street. You know, I was working with you know, Morgan Stanley divisions kind of spread out throughout America over the past couple of years. Things, things along those lines. Um, and everywhere we went, you know, as strange at a personal level um, as it was to be, you know, I'm on stage essentially teaching people how to utilize an altered state of consciousness to enhance performance. That is, to me at least, remarkably cutting edge. And certainly, you know, it wasn't business as normal when I got out of high school or college or grad school, right? It was a radical departure from, from that. But everywhere we went, um, people would come up to us afterwards, throng us, flog, and, and say things like, well, the flow is great, but what do you think about we just got back from a two-week silent Vipassana meditation week, or the whole team has been trained up in transcranial magnetic stimulation. They're zapping their brains with electrodes, Wall Street brokers before they're going on the trading floor to kind of put themselves in an altered state of consciousness that enhances high-speed decision-making. Or we met... You know, people with alternative sexuality practices where they were using sex as a way to train consciousness. We met whole teams of engineers at Fortune 100 companies microdosing on psychedelics for enhanced creativity. So everywhere we were going, people were utilizing an entire array of consciousness-altering techniques to increase performance. And it was much, much bigger than flow. And so that mm -hmm. was what we write, and that what in trying to document what is going on, why is this happening, why is it happening now, and what does it mean, um, was kind of the journey that became the book. Amazing, and you know, you guys have been at this for quite a while. But you, one of the things you do is you set the stage here with a little bit of history in this book, which I think is really good. You start the book off with this introduction and. Now, I'm not going to butcher the name. It's Alchibiades or Alchibiades. <laughs> it was a, no, a brave and noble attempt at a difficult Greek I name. I tried it. Like you said before we started, you're not going to have any 
Greek words in your next book, but it's this <laughs> prominent Greek, the prominent Greek general and politician in Athens in 415 BD, and he he would have what seemed like wild parties around these uh, nine day. Um, uh, yeah, Lucian so, rituals, these yeah, Lucian so mystery rituals, and he designed it to strip away the the standard frames of reference um, and profound states of consciousness. Speak with the listeners about the importance of the rituals that he was using in this kaikion to create altered states of consciousness, because reality. So let me is, let me let me know, ba- let me back it up, and okay. um going to walk in a, a little farther back, which is okay. at the heart of stealing fire, there are a number of things going on. Um, and one of the things is, one of the points that we make very clearly is this is not the first time in history that a group of people right. have tapped into the possibility that altered states of consciousness can massively increase performance. And people are so crazy for this idea for the, that they're willing to risk their lives for it. So the first example we give, as you pointed out, is Alcibiades. So in Greece, the rites of Eleusis were a nine-day state-changing ritual. They used everything from endurance sports um, through uh, prayer, chanting, dancing, uh, and then the drinking of a, a potion called kaikion that mm-hmm. modern historians contained an LSD derivative, so it was a hallucinogenic potion, but it was a long state-changing ritual. And now the rites of Eleusis were incredibly important historically. Plato's work was informed by them. Pythagoras' work was informed by them. They seeded a tremendous amount of culture, because one of the things we point out throughout history is altered states of consciousness tend to seed culture. The insights people get in these states tend to get translated back into innovation that ends up changing culture. And Alcibiades, the, the kaikion, was protected. You, it was, you couldn't talk about the rituals. Nobody could disclose any of their secrets on pain of death. And you certainly, certainly couldn't use kaikion outside of the temple, right? It was very, very, very held down. Alcibiades was the first Promethean, a fire stealer. He broke into the temple. He stole some kaikion. He threw a really wild party and by morning, he was exiled. He set in motion of the, kind of the trial of his beloved teacher, Socrates. He kicked off a whole lot of mess by trying to steal this potion to throw a party, which, you know, our only point here is that hidden inside of history, right, tucked inside the names and dates we know really well, you know, secreted behind stories that, as a rule, bore, our, bore school children to tears are these wild tales of some upstart rebel, seeker, trickster, whatever, stealing a state-changing technology. Could be kaikion, could be a secret religious ritual, could be a crazy new sport, doesn't matter, to alter consciousness. And so that mm-hmm. the first point is, hey, we can trace this. I mean, it probably goes into the into prehistory. But we can certainly trace it all the way back to the Greeks, and it repeats itself throughout history. As and and that's what's happening now today. But there are key differences today. Well, primarily, we're going to get in. Yeah, we'll get into. Um, what these are, this selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, and richness that you talk about in the book. But I want to ask, you know, you tell a lot of stories in this book, and I love the fact that you use stories to really uh, 
kind of accentuate key points. And this one is about the Navy SEALs, because you mentioned it right in the front jacket of the book. And a key point was moving beyond oneself, or as Commander Rich Davis called it, the switch. Um, which were these were these guys, these groups of guys that are in the SEALs, they kind of merge as one. Speak about what Plato described as ecstasis, because that is this state of being or state of altered consciousness where you know these these navy seals will get when their union is almost one together all of them and it was fascinating yeah so we were faced with a really unusual problem which is how what to, so what what we started to what our research into flow revealed uh, because in researching flow, one altered state of consciousness, we had to kind of survey a bunch of other altered states of consciousness. So we looked at the neurobiology of flow, the individual, like in you in a flow state. There's group flow. That's a team of people performing at their peak, right? A, a team coming together for a great brainstorming session or a fantastic fourth quarter comeback in football are great examples of, of kind of what How about a jazz works. band that just really jazz, Yeah, a jazz band going through the roof is perfect, right? Really crazy. <laughs> any improv, any group, when the group, improv theater group, when the improv band, the jazz band, they come together and the music just soars. That's that's a great example of group flow. Um, you tend to get a lot of really like hive mind, spontaneous imp- improvisation. Um, really, really high end teamwork. And then you know you can have communitas, which is group flow at scale. So what happens to an entire stadium during a rock concert, right? Um, and but it also turns out that. Uh, we had to kind of unpack the neurobiology of a lot of other altered states of consciousness. And in doing so, what we realized is that this whole broad category of consciousness shifting technologies from meditative and contemplative states to flow states through technology-induced states, through psychedelic states, through so-called mystical states like speaking in tongues or out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences. Neurobiologically, if you look under the hood, what's going on in the brain, when we've got very good at this over the past 10, 15 years, they're all roughly the same. And we wanted to talk about in this book this broader category of experiences. Altered states of consciousness was too big, right? That stretches from dreaming on one end to you know, psychedel- or, uh, schizophrenic states on the other. We were talking about like a very specific domain that was north of happy, and we needed a term for it. And when we were with the Navy SEALs, uh, Rich Davis, commander of SEAL Team 6, was talking about a couple of things. He was talking about the importance of his team dropping into group flow. He didn't have a word for it. He called it flipping the switch. And he said, you know, the Greeks had this really great word for it. They called it ecstasis. And it stuck in our brains. And we went home and we looked up the definition. And ecstasis, ecstasis, it literally means to stand outside oneself and to be filled with divine inspiration. Now, why mm-hmm. this matters so much is in these states, in all the states I just described, not flow states, awe, contemplation, meditation, psychedelic states, one of the things they share in common is our sense of self disappears. We stand outside ourselves, and these are all, all the brain's information processing machinery gets jacked up. So these are very information-rich states. So what they call divine inspiration Today, we would call insight and intuition or heightened creative problem solving, right? Take, take your pick of the terminology, but all those things happen in these states. So we went, oh, wow, rather than, you know, 
using improper terminology or trying to stretch flow to some like ridiculous length to mean something it doesn't, we decided to go all the way back to the Greeks and use the term ecstasis for the states of consciousness we were interested in, because those were the states of consciousness people kept talking to us about utilizing. Well, now you, you talk about in the book, you state that there's four forces of ecstasis and that there's psychology, neurobiology, pharmacology, and technology. Can you tell our listeners how these elements, with, when combined, allow us to reach what we're talking about here is this peak state of performance, whether we're you know, a high-performance athlete or, or somebody working in a, a, you know, in a band or an orchestra, how do all of these things in particular kind of combine together to, you know, create so, this state? It's a great, it's a, it's a great question. And, and I, th- I think it's like a two part question. So let me tell you what's going on under the hood and let's, and then we'll talk about why those forces matter. And I won't go okay. into a lot of detail, but what right. we know is, is there's, there's a neurological signature for 21st century normal where you and I are most of the time, where most of our listener, your listeners are most of the time. And that mean, where that is, is brain waves are a beta wave. It's a fast-moving, jagged wave. It says, I'm awake, I'm alert, I'm paying attention, I'm processing information. Um, steady drip-drip of stress hormones like cortisol and norepinephrine and hyperactivity in the prefrontal cortex, which is the front of our brain, the part that does complex decision-making, higher cognitive functions, sense of morality, sense of will, all this stuff. So that's 21st century normal. In all these ecstatic states, we shift out of 21st century normal. Stress hormones flush out of our system. They're replaced by feel-good performance-enhancing drugs like like serotonin, dopamine, anandamide, endorphins. The prefrontal cortex calms down. It goes quiet. This is why our sense of self disappears. Self is actually calculated all over the prefrontal cortex. It's a network. Parts of the network start to wink out. The network goes down, we can no longer generate that sense of self. And brain waves move from agitated beta down into meditative alpha and theta. So there's this marked shift. That shift does a lot of things. One of the things it does is it massively amplifies um, fundamental information processing structures. In these states, because of the neurochemicals that are coursing through our system, we take in more information per second, so data gathering increases. Situational awareness increases. We pay more attention to that information, so salience increases. We're able to find more connections between that incoming information and older ideas. Pattern recognition gets jacked up. Then we're able to find even farther fun connections between like those new ideas and really deep buried older thoughts. So lateral thinking increases. This is um, learning goes up because the more neurochemicals that show up during experience, the better chance it moves from short-term holding to long-term storage. So as a result, we see in study after study, very significant boosts in really critical functions for everyday people, meaning creative problem solving goes up, collaboration, cooperation, goes up. These states increase our ability, all of our coping mechanisms. So anxiety decreases, depression decreases. We get healing from trauma in, in these states as well. And, and over time, with continued exposure, they tend to keep moving us up the adult development scale. So we start to be able to see things from multiple perspectives. Empathy grows. Um, we, get, we start to gain the traits associated with wisdom. So that's, that's how it works, and that's what you get 
in it. What is different today, why it matters right now, why we care, is twofold. One, when we analyze what we call the altered state economy, which is how much money do we spend currently trying to change the channel on consciousness to get out of our heads, we came up with a $4 trillion number. That's huge. Mm. It's one-sixteenth of the global economy, right? It is bigger than the GDP of Britain or India or Russia. Huge amount of money, and it's what we're spending currently trying to alter our consciousness. Some of this is intentional. Some of it is unintentional. But what it means for entrepreneurs, A, is $4 trillion worth of opportunity out there. B, it's all accelerating. And this is where those four forces come into play. Right now, psychology, neurobiology, technology, and pharmacology are essentially four domains that sort of surround these non-ordinary states of consciousness, and they're all accelerating exponentially. They're all information technologies. They're all moving, doubling speed. So this is a big deal. These used to be very rare states. They would show up very occasionally with 30 years of meditation practice kind of thing, if at all. We had crazy names for them. We called them mystical experiences and all that stuff, and they were among the rarest experiences in history and so powerful that they birthed religions and cultures, right? Now, because of right. these four forces, right, first of all, psychology has become a data a harder science, right, thanks to big data. Um, so we're starting to get really good information about formerly squishy experiences. So we have a map of a territory that we've never had before. Advances in neurobiology allow us to look underneath that map, right? They give us mechanism. We can suddenly explain what's happening in our brains and our bodies when we're experiencing the inexplicable. We can figure out how these things are actually having their psychological impact, why that's, why that's happening, where the performance impact is coming from. Technology allows us to take these experiences to scale. So it's no longer, you know, five people dancing on a campfire. It's 500,000 people in a stadium. And pharmacology allows us to tune these states with incredible, incredible, incredible precision and precipitate them nearly on demand. So what you're getting, for example, the Navy SEALs. One of the things the SEALs right. have built is a mind gym where they are literally, they've examined all the tools and tech for kind of brain training, mind training you can have to kind of create these states and accelerate performance. And one of the things they've done is they've taken isolation, hippie-style flotation tanks, right, this countercultural fetish for changing state, right? You put somebody, float them in salt water at room temperature um, and remove all sights and sounds, and it cuts off incoming information. It shuts down our ability to create that sense of self because it takes away all the inputs. This has been around since the 60s, right? Developed by John, John Lilly a really long time ago. The Navy have taken these tanks, added in neurofeedback, biofeedback, sound, and they're using it to massively shorten uh, post-mission recovery times and to train up languages. We heard uh, uh, people telling us that they can use these pods to train a SEAL in a foreign language in uh, six weeks instead of what used to take six months. So, so really, really big upside. Yeah, and you know, it, your book really accentuates the fact that yes, there is these these four forces, but you know, those those trips that people used to take with ayahuasca and that kind of stuff, the the ancient Indians, it isn't required now. Um, obviously, that is one of the elements, but 
you're finding this where these people are getting to these heightened states of and peak performance and so on um, in with or without them. We're going to talk about Burning Man and we're going to talk about a few other things, but you have a great story in the book about this roboticist, Michael Siegel, and his 10-day meditation. He comes out and he complains and you know how sore he is after having been in this meditation retreat, which led him to inventing what you call in the book enlightened engineering. And I have to admit, it's the first time I heard that. Can you explain the story and the significant impact that uh, is it Mickey, Mikey or Mickey? Siegel Mikey, it's Mikey. Had on, yeah, yeah, Mikey was a venture capitalist, on, a technologist, um, brilliant guy, and uh, but really like you know had a lot of early success, but um, was was personally very lost. And he you know like a lot of lost people became a seeker, traveled around the world, did a lot of meditation, monasteries, ashrams, that kind of thing. Nothing was really working. Finally, after a couple of years of it, at a it was in Palm Springs. He was at a silent meditation retreat, and he finally, you know, as you pointed out, after like I think it was day nine or something, right, sitting, total horrible pain. He suddenly has a you know huge satori moment, right? The pain recedes, and he's clear, and he it feels completely life changing, and he goes back to his normal life, and it's not completely life changing. And he can't get it to merge with his high-tech, multitasking lifestyle. It's not, it's not meshing clearly. And all he does is, he, you know, he, he takes, he's a technologist. So he says, well, let's, what's the technological approach to this particular situation? Can we use technology to help us precipitate these states far more quickly? And he calls this upstart field, enlightenment engineering. He founded the Consciousness Hacking Conference um, and, a, and a number of other things with some partners. Um, and this has become a global movement. People who are doing everything from working on you know, EEG headsets to meditation apps to Mikey's got really interesting devices. He's built kind of visual displays that m merge visual entrainment and audio entrainment and can switch perspectives so you can be watching your partner's heart rate beat as a flower on a screen and they'll be watching yours and with the right music in, in a dome immersive kind of VR experience, you, it's technologically mediated empathy and instant group flow is what it is. Um, and, you know, by the way, an on display at Burning Man every year, if, if anybody's curious, because um, that's one of the places, I mean, you know, he does a lot of work with the Navy. He does Mikey's a lot of work there. with, with yeah. um, pardon me? Yeah. Mikey's there every year at Burning Man. You talk he about is. that in the book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. speaking I mean, Burning of Man is Burning Man, you guys dedicate almost a whole chapter in your book to Burning Man. Why do you believe that the event, I mean, there isn't probably a listener out there that hasn't heard of Burning Man or read something about it. And it started with these guys in San Francisco in a warehouse uh, many, many moons ago. And I know the whole story. But to dedicate this chapter to it, why do you believe this event is so significant in helping people alter their state of consciousness and becoming better at either what they do, whether it's art or science or 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 as an athlete or whatever why would you recommend i've had so many friends go i've never gone i keep threatening i'm going to go up to the nevada desert and heat myself up for the you know however many days it is but i know you've been right 
I have been a couple of times. I, uh, you know, I mm-hmm. come out of San. I, I, you know, I I spent 13 years in San Francisco, so I knew, you know, I knew many of the uh, people who, who kind of were in that founding community. Um, they were s- similar overlapping worlds back back then. Um, so I've sort of gotten mm-hmm. to watch the, watch the whole evolution. But the reason Burning Man is in the book are there's three things you need to know. One, turns out they call festivals like Burning Man transformational festivals. And it turns out that's more than a metaphor. These festivals, and this was research done by Molly Crockett at Oxford, have the exact same impact that, say, meditation does or psychedelics do or group flow, you know, action sport triggered group flow or et cetera, et cetera. It shifts the brain just like these other ecstatic technologies. So you could talk about Burning Man at the festival itself is an ecstatic technology. When Molly Crockett did her research, she found that out that you know three out of four, seventy five percent of Burning Man attendees experience in a, a literal transformation. Right, they have a transformative moment, and that that experience powerful enough it lingers afterwards for days, months, weeks, sometimes years. So mm-hmm. it is literally a transformative festival. It has the same impact on the brain as these other state-changing practices. And more importantly, what we're, our interest in Burning Man was as an exemplar. First of all, if you want to see all four of the four forces, psychology, right, neurobiology, technology, yeah. right? The burning Man is the yeah. greatest ecstatic Man. trade show on the planet, right? That's what it is. First yes, and foremost, it it's an ecstatic trade show. So you, you want to see what it looks like. So our question was secondary. We knew, because there's copious amounts of lab research that on, in, in, you know, these states are boosting creative problem solving, are heightening collaboration and all that, those things in the lab, like really well documented, right? Burning Man is a place you can say, hey, all these forces are here. So we're taking this out of the lab into the real world. And is it leading to real innovation? Is it producing real change? Are we seeing something that's worth paying attention to? Should we care? And the cool thing is, and why Burning Man is so neat is one, it's not you know hippies in the desert. It's not famous people doing drugs. It's um, leaders of culture, people, CEOs of every major company you could possibly imagine, all of Silicon Valley, and Elon Musk launches his shows debuts his Tesla Roadster there. He comes up with the idea for the Hyperloop at Burning Man. Tony Shea decides to reorganize all of Zappos culture and rebuild to the tune of $350 million downtown Vegas based on kind of ecstatic principles and ideas. So what you see in the desert is, you know, people of money, power, and influence taking the inspiration they're receiving in these states, these non-ordinary states that they're having in the desert, and it's, they're taking it home with them, and it's spilling out and it's impacting culture. Where we we take it further is we look at examples of where, you know, we look at uh, Burners Without Borders, which does disaster relief, and they were very active after Katrina. And what was interesting is they were like a ragtag band of burners who came together, but they had so much experience living off-grid and in using sort of group flow 
as a state-changing technology to mobilize faster to heighten situational awareness and pattern recognition and all the stuff you get with it, um, they could respond to the crisis much, much better and faster than uh, major government agencies. And they didn't just sort of like rebuild communities. They taught communities to re-embrace themselves together, and they built art and taught people to play again and really brought communities back to life. And this is since spread all over the world. We saw something similar with a very successful intelligence gathering mission in Afghanistan. All the big government agencies, three-letter agencies, couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. And this one guy sets up essentially a Burning Man-style bar in the middle of Afghanistan, and he becomes the main data source for everybody from like Reuters to CNN to all of the government agencies. Like He's the only guy who knows what's going on, and he did it built based on ecstatic principles. So his stuff is now being exported you know, everywhere, and the UN is talking to Burners Without Borders about disaster relief in other countries. So we're starting to see this stuff not just innovate new products, right, but new company structures, designs of cities, disaster relief, intelligence gathering, urban planning. Those are big impacts starting to show up. And then we close the chapter with, you know, a section called High Times on Main Street, where our point is, and look, it's not just burning man culture leaking into the world. It's 44% of U.S. businesses are going to roll out a mindfulness-based stress reduction program to their employees. Yoga is a $28 million business. One out of 10 Americans have a regular, meaning annual, psychedelic practice. Marijuana is legal in almost half the states, right? And on and on and on. Mm -hmm. Um, We really are kind of, you know, what's showing up at Burning Man is crossing over, you know, onto Main Street. And um, so the proof of the four forces is why we pay attention to Burning Man. Um, And then Burning Man becomes a launch point for the broader discussion of, hey, man, this is showing up in the world. This is showing up in your world. What we say at the beginning of the book is this is the biggest revolution you've never heard of, and it's hiding in plain sight if you know where to look. And the reason is, is it unites these really disparate tribes who have no idea they're doing the same thing, right? The Wall Street crowd who's using transcranial magnetic stimulation to make them better traders does not think they have much in common with the Burning Man crowd or the rave crowd or, you know, action adventure sport athletes chasing flow down mountains, et cetera, et cetera. But all these people are doing the same things, right? They are trying to shift states to increase performance. And once you realize what that is, how it works, and how to look for it, you find it everywhere. Oh, yeah, it is spilling out into what we would call conventional society everywhere. And it is making a difference both in uh, cultures, societies, um, and in obviously inventions and things we're seeing happen. You know, in the conclusion of your book, you tell this great story about Larry Ellis and the New Zealanders and sailing against the wind. Your analogy that you use is, is to reverse our tactics and up in convention to make the most of what you're calling these non-ordinary states of consciousness. Every listener out there now has, has heard you for the last half an hour or so speaking about you know these four forces and how they interact and how it's changing people. From Stephen Kotler's perspective, I want I'd like to get two things. One, uh, what do you recommend, or if somebody hasn't ever gone down this path, what are the two or three things that Stephen Kotler would recommend doing? And two, 
if they want to take a deeper dive, not just the dive into your book, but let's say they want to read other things, what's the one or two things that's going to pivot them to say, hey, you know, this is something that I want to start practicing? Well, those are all good questions. Um, Two questions, actually. The one is, what are the two things that you do, Stephen Kotler, because uh, nothing is, this isn't theoretical stuff. This is all stuff that you've proven, you've researched, um, but stuff that you and Jamie are doing that is really practical for the person that's sitting there right now listening to us going, okay, I get it. All the SEALs are doing it. You know, all these corporations are trying it. What can I do? Yeah, those are great questions. So I'm going to give you two things. And the first is like a fundamental flow hacking tip, right? So here's what we know. McKinsey did a 10-year study. They found top executives are 500% more productive in flow. You'll want more flow in your work life. So what do you do? Flow states have triggers. There are 20 of them in total that we know of. There are probably way more. And we don't have time to go into any of this. But if you go, by the way, to stephencotler.com, uh, and sign up for my email newsletter, you'll get a free PDF that breaks down all 20 of these and tells you how to apply them. Or it's Awesome. In my That's book exactly what I was yeah. looking for. So, so they go to so your website. Is, and I'll Go to my website. Yeah. Okay. Go to my website. I'll give you, I'll give you a couple more things. But here's a tip I want to leave people with about these, about these triggers. Flow follows focus. First rule, it can only show up when all of our attention is totally focused on the right here, right now. It's absolute engagement with the present, right? And okay. the thing that ha- – when I go into an organization, doesn't, doesn't matter what organization I'm dealing with, um, if they've got offices, the first thing I tell people is if you can't hang a sign on your door that says, fuck off, I'm flowing, and keep it there for 90 minutes to 120 minutes at a time – you're screwed. You need 90-minute to 120-minute blocks of uninterrupted concentration. Best is first thing in the morning. Best is first thing in the morning. But you flow follows focus. You have to cultivate the environment, right? You have to prepare the container. You have to turn off your cell phone, turn off your email. Organizations that have policies like, you know, employee must return email and, you know, half an hour and answer messages in 15 minutes. Well, forget that. doesn't work. It's a stupid idea anyways, um, but really doesn't work. Studies show um, on coders, coders and flow can get knocked out of flow with a text and it can take 15 minutes to get back if you can get back at all. Mm-hmm. And right. research has also shown that 90 to 120 minute blocks are the best. If you can't protect that long, Protect your first hour of your day. Have your conversations. Tell your boss. Tell your employees. Tell everybody what's going on. Tell your wives, partners, husbands, right? Like have conversations about this is what I'm doing. Um, but it's the first step, right? You can't, can't get A to B without it. Second part, and I'm sure this is nothing new to your listeners, but if you want to start playing with state change, you can – I mean it is often useful – to come in and have one really big, grand experience. Now, that could be run a marathon and get really heavy runners high, learn a new action sport and get, like, flow, you know, thrill-produced flow, try a psychedelic for the first time. So, you know, take your pick, whatever is right for you, but a big experience, jump out of a plane, big experience that shows you what this is like if you're unfamiliar. If you're familiar, different story. But if you're unfamiliar, it is helpful to start with something that shows you what you're looking for. 
right? But then mm-hmm. regress it to the simple. Start with breath. Breath is the easiest thing. And so let me just give you a second bit. You can't be focused in the right here, right now if you're hyper-anxious. You just can't do it. Uh, anxiety is detrimental to flow. Too much of it will block the state. It will block focus, block creativity. The easiest way to down-regulate your nervous system is to make your inhales uh, or your exhales, excuse me, twice as long as your inhales. As long as you're doing like a four or five-second inhale and a you know, eight to ten-second exhale, that exhale is long enough if you repeat it three, four, five times that your brain, brain has a fixed energy budget, always trying to conserve energy. So if you want to produce panic hormones, which is what you get from a lot of norepinephrine, it's expensive, right? I mean, like, it takes a lot of energy, takes a lot of calories, takes, takes a lot of raw materials. Brain would much rather not do it. So what happens is when your exhale is twice as long as your inhale, your brain goes, oh, look at that. Long exhale. Dude must be calm. We don't have to make all these expensive neurochemicals. And you calm down. You can tweak the body to change the mind, right? You can use breath mm-hmm. to start taking control of your nervous system. It's going to be fundamental every step along the way. You know, with this, with this path, these are high energy states. You're going to need to know how to settle down. That's a very, those are two things anybody can do, both very, very useful. Probably not super sexy. You want more sexy, go to the flowgenomeproject.com. You'll get a free profile. It's a tradeology. It says, you know, you're like, if you're this kind of person, you'll find flow in these general directions. If you want to know how the flow triggers work and how to apply them, stephencotler.com, um, those two things. So, And back to your final question, which is, so Stealing Fire is obviously the book we're talking about. And, you know, what other books will I tell you to read? The first thing I will tell you is that there's, 15,000 words worth of footnotes in Stealing Fire. So every mm-hmm. single thing in there is extremely well documented. The second thing, and so I don't just go like, to the back of the book and look yes, for what I mean, you go want to the back and Go to the back yeah. of the book. And I, you know, yeah. if you, you're more interested, you know, once you've looked at Stealing Fire, if you want to drill down into flow and high performance, Rise of Superman, which, you know, came out a couple years back is still, I think, you know, one of the quintessential texts. Or go back to uh, the source, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's Flow. Awesome book on the, on the psychology where Rise does more than neurobiology. Um, and, you know, I got, I got, it, it's interesting you, you, you asked it. You asked for a general book, right? And one of the things that we are kind of arguing for in Stealing Fire is cognitive literacy, right? Understand how your brain works understand, and you know, this is sort of the big point, one of the big points we make in the book is, turns out, we now know, that the urge to alter our consciousness is a fundamental driver. It is, it's found in all mammals and some birds, right? And it's and it, and it there because not, these altered states, this, these specific kinds of altered states, where we lose ourselves and we tap into this information feed, are how evolution shaped our brain to solve certain kinds of problems. So if you look at what so-called 21st century skills, right, all the things we need to thrive in this current century, but none of the things we're really good at training up, creativity, collaboration, cooperation, what the research consistently shows is the problem is we keep trying to train up a skill. What we need to be training is a state of mind, right? So to be training the state of mind, to understand how that mind works, you need some level of cognitive literacy. We're hoping you get stealing fire. 
if you're looking for a second book that just sort of overviews everything that we know that's going on, including some state-changing stuff, but just in general, like, this is a phenomenal book about how the mind works and how to optimize it for complicated life in the 21st century. Daniel Levitin's The Organized Mind is really cool. It is. Okay. There's just – there's good, no way around nice. it. That's a, that's a neat, neat, neat book. Um, it's a very weird book because it's essentially a book about things like why it makes more sense to clean your office why it makes more sense to organize this way versus that way. Why it ma- but what he's really saying is same thing we're saying. We are starting to understand our, how our bodies and our brains work at a much deeper level than we've ever known before. And we can use this biology to our advantage um, and in, a, in a very kind of legitimate, significant way. Not a new idea. Right. Not this is my no. one of my favorite one of my favorite quotes. It's a William James quote, a Harvard psychologist, philosopher, turn of the century, really, you know, one of the smartest guys in the world, I think. A lot of people I think think that as well. But he basically said, you know, the most fundamental thing in an education is to figure out how to make your nervous system your ally instead of your enemy. Really good. Excellent. Yeah, so we, well, okay, I just found I just found it in my book. Yeah. The great thing in all education is to make our nervous system our ally instead of our enemy. Sorry, I I, I wanted to get it right because I like Mr. James. Quote from quote from William James, and obviously he's got books that people can delve into. Well, Stephen, it's obviously always an honor to have you on. You're always I love your energy. You've got great energy. You've got the kind of energy that just is. Uh, engulfs people, including my listeners, and I'm sure they're going to get a lot out of this. Um, we will put links um, to uh, all of the things that Stephen had, just for my listeners know, uh, within here to Stephen Kotler's website. He said there's yeah, a do me a favor, download please there. Give people, please give people the hot link just to Amazon to so they can just one-click their way to Stealing Fire. We will. We'll do that as well because we want you to get the book. By the way, the book is 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 listed at uh, on the dust jacket cover at uh, twenty seven ninety nine. But you can get the book for nineteen dollars and something right now at Amazon. You can get the Kindle version for like fourteen dollars and something. So uh, I've checked it out thoroughly, Stephen. Um, for all of those actually, actually for right now, if you're Prime, I actually think hardcover yeah. is cheaper than Kindle which may be the first time in the history of the universe that's happened. It's cheaper than the Kindle? Yeah, I don't know why. I oh, just wow. I mean, like wow. yeah, I don't I, I don't know I don't know why um but it is. Okay. That's pretty fun. That's good. Well, I for anybody out there who wants to know how to create more higher performance in their life, become more innovative, more creative, and just juice up the energies and all of the chemicals within your system that are automatically attached to that. This book has so many ideas and opportunities for you not only read and learn, take a deeper dive. I'm going to encourage you to go to Stephen's website, uh, learn more about him, uh, the Flow Genome Project as well. Stephen, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth and spending some time with me again um, talking about your new book, Stealing Fire. My pleasure, always. Hi, this is Greg Voison with Inside Personal Growth. I want to speak with you about author William Keepen and his new book entitled Belonging to God, Spirituality, Science, and the Universal Path of Divine Love. 
It is an exploration of divine love in Christianity and Islam and Hinduism. In my interview with Will, he speaks about the power that unites all religions and the universal spiritual path of heart, which is love, and brings it alive with key insights from cutting-edge science. I hope you enjoy this wonderfully deep dialogue with an author who knows how world religions are united in love and how science helps to illuminate a universal spirituality across all religions. If you would, please listen to Podcast 613, and you can visit Will's website by going to www.pathofdivinelove.org. That's www.pathofdivinelove.org. I hope you enjoy this interview with William Keepen, the author of the new book, called Belonging to God, Spirituality, Science, and the Universal Path of Divine Love.